Welcome back to the law. I am DK Williams, and this is episode 11, Roe vs. Wade. Don't ever let it be said that I dodged the controversial cases. We'll discuss this 1973 case that said any state's ban of abortion during the first trimester of pregnancy is unconstitutional. Before we get to that, let me remind you that, as always, The Law with D.K. Williams is brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network, always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. Roe versus Wade. You may have heard of this one. It struck down the, any state law, in this particular case it was from Texas, but it struck down any state ban of abortion in the first trimester. You may find it unusual that the Constitution says anything that specific, and of course it doesn't. But how the court got there and what exactly the court said is important, and so we'll discuss it. Remember to follow me on Twitter at BlueCarp and on Facebook.com slash BlueCarp. We can continue the discussion there after the podcast. Let me know what you think of it. If you have any comments or questions, I'd love to hear from you. All right, before we get into the specifics of the actual case, it's important for me to let you know where I'm coming from personally when it comes to abortion. I'm pro-choice, like most libertarians. I understand why libertarians are not sometimes, however. The question comes down to the non-aggression principle and how it is applied. If you apply it to the mother, then nobody can tell her what to do with the pregnancy. If you apply it to the unborn, no one can harm it. The non-aggression principle, which states it is immoral to initiate force, doesn't tell you how to apply it in that situation. So there's valid reasons to apply it in either case, and I'm not going to condemn anyone who disagrees with me on that. So I personally believe it should be allowed into the first trimester, and that outcome is what the case says in Roe versus Wade, what the Supreme Court says. So I'm pro-choice, but this is a really bad decision, and that's because I understand the difference between policy and a constitutional analysis. They are not the same thing. They are not synonymous. Like Justice um, William Marshall Harlan said in the last podcast where I quoted him about it's not the court's job to solve every social issue. It's the job to apply the Constitution. And the Constitution isn't designed to solve every political question. That's what the legislature is for. That's what the executive branch is for. All right. So you know where I'm coming from. Roe versus Wade is a 28-page opinion. And I thought about that. I'm like, well, doesn't it depend on how big the font is, how many pages it is? Yes, it does. I'm reading it in the default PDF version when I download it from Casemaker, which is this legal software that gives us access to, to every case, basically. So it's 28 opinions in a PDF, and it's a 7-2 decision, so it's not particularly close. Justice Harry Blackman wrote it, and he was joined by the Chief Justice Warren Berger, also William Douglas, William Brennan, Potter Stewart, Thurgood Marshall, and Lewis Powell. Interesting fact that I discovered while looking up stuff for this case, William Douglas was the longest serving justice in the history of the United States. He served from 1939 as an FDR appointee to 1975 when he retired. And he had some great quotes that aren't necessarily specifically applied to Roe. They're not in the Roe case, but I think it's important to know where some of these guys are coming from. So I kind of like some of William Douglas's stuff. Just a few examples of things he said in other cases. Quote, since when have we Americans been expected to bow submissively to authority and speak with awe and reverence to those who represent us? End quote. Love that. That's going to have to go on my Facebook page. He also said, the right to be let alone is indeed the beginning of all freedoms. Sounds libertarian, right? Another great one. He said, the Constitution is not neutral. It was designed to take the government off the backs of people. I'm loving this. All right, one more. He said, we are rapidly entering the age of no privacy, where everyone is open to surveillance at all times, where there are no secrets from government. 
But this guy died in 1980. He was very prescient. Got to give him credit for that. Ah, and finally, which to me sums up the entire problem with the Supreme Court, and it does apply to Roe versus Wade. He didn't say this in Roe, but he said it in another matter. We do not sit as a super legislature to weigh the wisdom of legislation. Amen. I was digging this guy. That was some stuff from William Douglas, an associate justice who joined the majority of Roe versus Wade. The dissent was written by William Rehnquist and joined by Colorado's own Byron Wizard White. And there's a quick tangent here. When I was in high school, National Lampoon had an article parody of How to Write Dirty, and it was written by Thurgood Marshall in the parody. Part of it was that Thurgood Marshall said it never got old to him when he would walk up to Byron White and say, excuse me, which way to the whizzer? All right, back to the case. Who was Jane Roe? Now, her personal story is interesting, and it's sad. And after Roe versus Wade was decided decades later, or decade, 15 years later, she became known. She came out and talked about the whole situation. Her real name is Norma McCorvey. She just died last year in 2017. She was 69 years old. So everything she has to say about it is a whole nother issue, a whole nother podcast. But if you're interested, check it out. So she was single and pregnant, and there was a Texas statute that made getting an abortion a criminal offense. She sought an injunction against Texas from prosecuting her if she got an abortion. She said it was a violation of her constitutional rights, criminally prosecute her if she did have an abortion. There's a procedural aspect of this case that applies sometimes in cases. Courts don't normally decide a case or hear it if the controversy has been decided, if it's moot, the doctrine of mootness. For example, let's say you've got a custody case and a state court is talking about a 16-year-old. There are some appellate issues involved. It goes up to the state Supreme Court. And if that child who was 16 when it all started, if that child is now 19, in Colorado it's 19 to be emancipated, the Supreme Court won't hear it because it doesn't matter anymore. Now the child is an adult and can do whatever it wants. So the custody issue doesn't matter. So it was an issue when it started, but it wasn't an issue when it got to the Supreme Court. And of course, if you got a case involving a pregnancy, by the time it gets to the U.S. Supreme Court, it's not going to be an issue. Something happened to that child one way or another. It was either born or it was aborted or something else happened. So if we're going to use this doctrine of mootness, you would never have a case about abortion reaching the Supreme Court. It would take too long, right, before the issue was resolved one way or another. So there is this concept called capable of repetition, yet evading review. And that's where this comes into play. And the Supreme Court noted that they had to deal with this mootness issue, right? And the Supreme Court said, quote, pregnancy is a significant fact in the litigation. The normal 266-day human gestation period is so short that the pregnancy will come to term before the usual appellate process is complete. If that termination makes a case moot, pregnancy litigation seldom will survive much beyond the trial stage, and appellate review will be effectively denied. So when that happens, they can go ahead and hear it even though this particular case is moot. It is capable of repetition but evading review. So that's all about Roe. Who was Wade? Henry Wade was the district attorney of Dallas, uh, Dallas County. He did that for a long time from 1951 to 1987 so it covered this period of time. So since he was the district attorney and he his office would have been prosecuting uh, anybody who had gotten an abortion, he was the named defendant in this case. And in addition to Roe, which he was involved with as the named defendant, he prosecuted Jack Ruby for killing Lee Harvey Oswald two days after Oswald had assassinated Jack Kennedy. Some historical stuff he was involved with. The Texas law that is at issue here made abortion illegal in every case except to save the mother. And the case started, it wasn't just Jane Roe. There was also a doctor who had been charged with the crime of helping to provide an abortion. He was concerned he'd be charged again. There's also a married couple who are not pregnant, but said that making abortion illegal subjected them to a criminal prosecution, and that was something that they had the right to dispute. The Supreme Court tossed out the doctor's case, tossed out the married couple's case. So when you've got a case where it's capable of repetition, yet evading a review, the Supreme Court said there's an exception to the usual federal rule that an actual controversy 
must exist at review stages and not simply when the action is initiated. Three judge district court panel declared the abortion statutes void as vague and overbroadly infringing the plaintiff's Ninth and Fourteenth Amendment rights. So props to the district court for even mentioning the Ninth Amendment. So that's good. Now, the Supreme Court mentioned it, but they did not use the Ninth Amendment at all in determining uh, the constitutionality of, of this abortion statute. They only used the 14th Amendment. The Supreme Court decided you can't ban abortion at all during the first trimester. The state can regulate it from the first trimester to viability, then can, but does not have to, ban it completely after viability except to save the mother's life. These are incredibly specific rules, right, that are supposedly derived from the Constitution. These rules are far more appropriate to the legislation and not a judicial decree. So where does this first trimester cutoff derive from Madison's document when he wrote the Constitution, right? It doesn't, obviously, but that doesn't stop them, of course. They had an outcome that they thought was moral and just. They used the Constitution to arrive at that outcome to decide that policy, and that is not an appropriate use of Supreme Court power. Supreme Court began laying out how sensitive the issue of abortion is in the case. So Roe versus Wade includes this paragraph from the court. We forthwith, lawyers like to say forthwith, it's ridiculous, but they said it. We forthwith acknowledge our awareness of the sensitive and emotional nature of the abortion controversy, of the vigorous opposing views, even among physicians, and of the deep and seemingly absolute convictions that the subject inspires. One's philosophy, one's experiences, one's exposure to the raw edges of human existence, one's religious training, one's attitudes towards life and family and their values, and the moral standards one establishes and seeks to observe are all likely to influence and to color one's thinking and conclusions about abortion. Ah, uh, yeah, okay, that's fine. But then they get into this. In addition, population growth, pollution, poverty, and racial overtones tend to complicate and not to simplify the problem. That's a true statement. But these things that complicate the social and policy issues are policy. They have nothing to do with the constitutional issue. They're not applicable. They shouldn't be, but that's why the court has, has made them applicable. They're pretending they are, and they use that power to achieve a just ends regardless of the constitutional legitimacy of those ends. So Rose's argument was that the Texas statutes were unconstitutionally vague and that they abridged her right of personal privacy, which were protected by the 1st, 4th, 5th, 9th, and 14th Amendments. She mentions 9th, so at least she mentions it. But let's talk about this philosophically for a minute, because that's what the Supreme Court does. Even if a right to privacy exists, why doesn't that right to privacy apply to the unborn or the principle of self-ownership? This formulation about whether or not there's a right to privacy under the Constitution does not solve the actual problem. What rights do the unborn have, if any? So does the non-aggression principle apply only to the mother or to both the mother and the unborn? The Supreme Court doesn't answer that question. They get into philosophy, but not that one. And the concepts of natural rights, which are mentioned in the Declaration of Independence, and it's the same guys who wrote the Declaration that wrote the Constitution, that shows the ideas behind what was important, what was the underlying foundation to both these documents and to the eventual establishment of the federal government of the United States, was based upon this idea of natural rights. And natural rights are basically the right of self-ownership, which can be extrapolated to the principle of non-aggression. The Supreme Court said, the principal thrust of Roe's attack on the Texas statute is that the statutes improperly invade a right said to be possessed by the pregnant woman to choose to terminate her pregnancy. Roe would discover this right in the concept of personal liberty, which is in air quote, or in quotes on the page, the concept of personal liberty embodied in the 14th Amendment's due process clause or in personal, marital, familial, and sexual privacy said to be protected by the Bill of Rights or its penumbras 
or among those rights reserved to the people by the Ninth Amendment. They finally got to the Ninth Amendment. That w- that's what makes the most sense. And they're outlining Roe's arguments. So before they get to the constitutional questions, they say they're going to address history of abortion, examine the state purposes and interests behind the criminal abortion laws. And they said, it perhaps is not generally appreciated that the restrictive criminal abortion laws in effect in a majority of states today, which is 1973, are of relatively recent vintage. Those laws, generally banning abortion at any time during pregnancy, are not ancient or even of common law origin. Instead, they derive from statutory changes effected for the most part in the latter half of the 19th century. So they're making the point that it's not a new thing that abortion is being allowed. The new thing is that abortion was banned. And now those new bans, in terms of history, are being relaxed in some parts of the world, in some of the states, but not in Texas. Court mentions that in Greek and Roman law, there was no protection to the unborn. And if there was an abortion issue about losing a child, the claim was based upon the concept of a violation of the father's right to his offspring. So they talk about that. Then they talk about the common law of England and the concept of the quickening becomes important. They discuss this extensively. And to my surprise, the quickening has nothing to do with Highlander 2. Quickening in this instance is, quote, it is undisputed that at common law, abortion performed before quickening, which is the first recognizable movement of the fetus in utero, appearing usually from the 16th to the 18th week of pregnancy, was not an indictable offense. So they're talking about quickening, the first recognizable movement, when you start to feel the baby, I guess, right? So before that, it was never indictable under common law. They said that's not not disputed, the court says. The absence of a common law crime for pre-quickening abortion appears to have developed from a confluence of earlier philosophical, theological, and civil and canon law concepts of when life begins. So they're recognizing philosophy, theology, church law are all relevant to the history of it, and the history is used to support the court statement that the laws against abortion were relatively new. They point out that England's first criminal abortion statute was in 1803, and then they note that more recently in 1967, the UK permitted a licensed physician to perform an abortion with two other licensed physicians, and they agreed that the pregnancy would harm the woman or that there was a substantial risk that if the child were born, it would suffer from such physical or mental abnormalities as to be seriously handicapped. Now, I had a brother with severe physical handicaps and cognitive disabilities. This is a heavy philosophical discussion about which I guarantee you the Constitution says nothing, and it's also beyond the scope of this particular discussion. But it talks about philosophy and religion, which are not answered by the Constitution. They're answered by philosophy, and they're answered by religion. Now, it's not to say the Constitution doesn't have a philosophy behind it. It does. But part of that philosophy is it's not there to answer all of these specific policy questions. The court got into American law. Remember, the country was born in 1776. The court noted that the first state to have an abortion law was Connecticut in 1821. So the country had been around uh, almost 50 years before any state had a statute making abortion a crime. And that was only after the quickening. So I think it's accurate. The notion that abortion had only recently become acceptable is not backed up by history. It wasn't illegal until relatively recently in historical times. The court notes that by the end of the 1950s, a large majority of the jurisdictions, the states, had banned abortion at any time unless done to protect the mother's health. So that's by the end of the 50s. Most states had banned abortion, and this case is being decided in 1973. Court sums up the American history by noting that it is thus apparent that a common law at the time of the adoption of our Constitution and throughout the major portion of the 19th century, abortion was viewed with less disfavor than under the most American statutes currently in effect. Phrasing it another way, 
a woman enjoyed a substantially broader right to terminate a pregnancy than she does in most states today. All right, now they went on, they looked at the position of the American Medical Association and they spent several pages on that. But again, let's come back to this. What does the American Medical Association's opinion have to do with a constitutional analysis? The doctor's medical view is applicable to a policy discussion, but not a constitutional one. And remember, they are not the same thing as we've discussed. The court notes that in 1970, just three years before Roe was decided, the AMA noted a polarization of the medical profession on this controversial issue. Again, that polarization or difference of medical opinion is a policy consideration, not a constitutional one. Yet the Supreme Court is treating it like a constitutional issue or relevant to a constitutional issue. The AMA included in this report that no party to the procedure to abortion should be required to violate personally held moral principles. So if a doctor thinks abortion is wrong, he should not be made to participate in one, right? That makes perfect sense. But in the current atmosphere, that might no longer be a consideration. It's like many progressive statists don't give a rodent sphincter about your personally held moral principles. They said as much in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, basically saying that Jack Phillips the baker was a racist, well not racist, a homophobe, and a Nazi because of his personally held moral principles. So they were a factor mentioned by the Supreme Court in Roe v. Wade, but not in the Masterpiece Cake Shop. They're screw your moral principles. You better do what we tell you. And that's actually why the cake shop case was decided or thrown back to Colorado when the Supreme Court dealt with it is because one of the so-called impartial judges did call Phillips' belief relevant to Nazism. And so the Supreme Court said, yeah, you, you, that's not a fair trial, not a fair process. So you guys can't do that. Back to abortion, the court noted that historical matter, as a historical matter, when most of the laws were enacted, the procedure was a hazardous one for the woman. Then they talk about antiseptic techniques, of course, were based on discoveries by Lister, capital L Lister, who I assume is the inventor of Listerine, although I'm not sure about that. Thus, the court said, it has been argued that a state's real concern in enacting a criminal abortion law was to protect the pregnant woman. Okay, I think that's another example of what we call pretext. They weren't really concerned about the woman. They just didn't want to allow abortion, which I understand, but let's not pretend it's about the woman when it's really about the baby. In any event, if that was a concern in the original criminal abortion laws, mortality rates of women are much lower now. The process is safer. Then we get to the real reason. The court talks about the state's interest or a duty, some claim, in protecting prenatal life. Some of the argument for this justification rests on the theory that a new human life is present from the moment of conception. There you go. That's the primary argument today for sure. So after discussing all these policy issues and history and religion and philosophy, section eight of the opinion starts to get into the constitutional analysis of all of that. They try to apply all of those policy matters to the Constitution. The first sentence of this section sums up everything wrong with this type of constitutional jurisprudence. The court says, the Constitution does not explicitly mention any right of privacy. Of course it doesn't. The Constitution doesn't list rights it gives to people. And we go over this over and over again, but it's so obvious and it is completely ignored by the federal courts. The Constitution lists some of the rights everyone has and explicitly states that the federal government will not violate them. And the Ninth Amendment says, hey, we just mentioned some things that the federal government can't do. Every natural right is still retained by the people. Just because we didn't mention it here, those rights still exist. And yet the court is consistently talking about the rights in the Constitution. It's not an exhaustive list. They even said it's not an exhaustive list. Again, the same example, whether or not the First Amendment existed, you have the right to speak. 
The First Amendment doesn't give you that right. That is a natural right. That is a right you have as a human being. And the First Amendment explicitly says Congress shall make no law abridging that right. Not that you have the right. The entire Bill of Rights set out the same way. Congress shall not, etc., etc. It doesn't say the people have the right to free speech. They knew that. That was a given. They were trying to allay the concerns that the federal government would abridge that right, would take away that right. And it is the entire point of the Ninth Amendment. Then the Supreme Court gets into discussing the penumbras of the Bill of Rights from Griswold v. Connecticut, which is another case we might discuss in the future. Griswold was decided in 1965 and said that a state's ban on the use of contraceptives violated the right to marital privacy. But there's no need for a penumbra to come to that conclusion. Either you have the natural right to that privacy or to make that decision because of self-ownership and because it's not aggressing against anyone else, you have the right to do that. There's no need for a penumbra of listed rights in the Bill of Rights because they're not listed as a gift. They're listed as explicitly rights that will not be infringed. Anyway, it's the wrong way to look at it. You've got the right to self-ownership. What you do in private is a use of that right. But even if you use the penumbra analysis or natural rights analysis, it doesn't answer the question about abortion. So the question remains and will always remain, does the fetus have the same rights as the mother? If so, the mother can't terminate the pregnancy, and if not, the mother can because it's her body. So the moral question is easy to state, but it's impossible to answer in a way satisfactory to everyone. It's not a math problem that can be figured out for a right answer. It is a philosophical and an ethical question, and the answer is nowhere to be found in the Constitution. And Justice Harlan talked about that in some of these other cases. The Constitution is not to be used as a tool to write every moral or societal or justice problem. It's not what it's there for. Even if you think your outcome is completely moral and ethical, and you may be absolutely right, that's not what the Constitution or what the Supreme Court is supposed to do with the Constitution. So in basing Roe versus Wade on this right to privacy, the court does say, this right of privacy, whether it be founded in the 14th Amendment's concept of personal liberty and restrictions upon state action, as we feel it is, or as the district court determined in the Ninth Amendment's reservation of rights to the people, it's broad enough to encompass a woman's decision whether or not to terminate her pregnancy. Again, let's give props to the district court who was right. They both had the same result, but at least the district court couched it in Ninth Amendment terms and not 14th Amendment terms. But no matter how you get to the right to privacy, once you determine it exists, which I agree, I think it does, I think it is a natural right, and the right to privacy may just be a shorthand, but it's part of the right of self-ownership, acknowledging the right to privacy does not directly lead you to the right to have an abortion. That's a big jump. And we know that's what the policy of seven members of the Supreme Court in Roe believed in. They thought it was the best policy. And they used the Constitution to implement that policy on a national level. So because of this privacy right, the court noted that Wade and the people on her side believe that the woman's right is absolute and that she's entitled to terminate her pregnancy at whatever time, in whatever way, or for whatever reason she alone chooses. With this, we do not agree, the Supreme Court said. They went on, the privacy right involved, therefore, cannot be said to be absolute. In fact, it is not clear to us that the claim asserted by some people on Roe's side that one has an unlimited right to do with one's body as one pleases bears a close relationship to the right of privacy previously articulated in the court's decisions. Again, they're talking about who has the right to privacy and what that right to privacy encompasses. They don't discuss what rights the fetus has, which is missing the point. And it's a policy issue. And again, those policy issues should not be left up to the Supreme Court of nine people. Issues application of the non-aggression principle to the pregnant woman or to the unborn or to both. If this right exists, the right of privacy 
privacy exists. It exists as a natural right based on the principle of self-ownership, which is the basis of natural rights. Does the unborn have those rights? Why or why not? The Supreme Court is writing about the woman's right to privacy, and it just assumes the unborn does not have that right to exist. Because of that, the court says, we therefore conclude that the right of personal privacy includes the abortion decision, but that right is not unqualified. Most of the courts have agreed, the lower courts, have agreed that the right of privacy, however based, is broad enough to cover the abortion decision, that the right nonetheless is not absolute and is subject to some limitations. And then we get the court into weighing competing interests. The court says, where certain fundamental rights are involved, the court has held that regulation limiting those rights may be justified only by a compelling state interest. Ah, this is just so horrible. The Supreme Court has developed a hierarchy of rights. Some of them are fundamental, but they tell you what those are and what they mean. That's the opposite of the laws of nature and of nature's God, which is what Jefferson referred to in the Declaration of Independence. Natural law, natural rights. And again, yes, that's the Declaration, not the Constitution, but it explains the concept. The phrase describes these rights that we have because we exist. And the Supreme Court has here rejected that foundation upon which this entire country was built. And it acts as if the Constitution grants rights. At least they mention the Ninth Amendment here, but they don't base their opinion on it. So now the Supreme Court is going to decide not only what a fundamental right is, but if the state has a sufficient compelling interest to abrogate that right. These are policy decisions. Rights exist. They aren't determined and ranked and ordered and weighed, which is what the Supreme Court does. So if the fetus is a person and subject to natural rights, it is or it isn't, but it's not based upon the language of the 14th Amendment. It's a philosophical question. The different queries. It doesn't mean you can't have, they, they both can't have the same answer. I think they do, but they are different questions and they should not be treated as identical. So after going through all of this and discussing the issue, the court said, all this together with our observation that throughout the major portion of the 19th century, prevailing legal abortion practices were far freer than they are today, persuades us that the word person as used in the 14th Amendment does not include the unborn. They acknowledge that the pregnant woman can't be isolated in her privacy. She carries an embryo and later a fetus if one accepts the medical definitions of the developing young in the human uterus. As we, the court, have intimated above, it is reasonable and appropriate for a state to decide that at some point in time, another interest, that of the health of the mother or that of the potential human life, becomes significantly involved. The woman's privacy is no longer sole, and any right of privacy she possesses must be measured accordingly. The Supreme Court is going to do this based on the Constitution. They're going to weigh this based on the Constitution. These are policy decisions, not constitutional ones, and they're pretending they're constitutional ones. They go on. Texas urges that, apart from the 14th Amendment, life begins at conception and is present throughout pregnancy, and that therefore the state has a compelling interest in protecting that life from and after conception. Again, it's not the state's interest, it's the interest of the unborn. The court goes on. We need not resolve the difficult question of when life begins. When those trained in the respective disciplines of medicine, philosophy, and theology are unable to arrive at any consensus, the judiciary, at this point in the development of man's knowledge, is not in a position to speculate as to the answer. But they are. They're saying that life does not begin at conception, and the unborn does not have the right to life, based on a constitutional analysis. So they say they can't do it, but then they do it. That's the effect of their decision. And remember, I think it's the right policy decision. It's just got nothing to do with the Constitution. The court goes on and says that, in view of all this, we do not agree that by adopting one theory of life that it begins at conception, Texas may override the rights of the pregnant woman that are at stake. We repeat, however, that the state does have an important and legitimate interest in preserving and protecting the health of the pregnant woman, and it has another important and legitimate interest in protecting the potentiality of human life. These interests are separate and distinct. Each grows in substantiality as the woman approaches term 
and at a point during pregnancy, each becomes compelling. So I think they're kind of hinting at this. They're, they're couching it in terms of the state's interest in keeping the child alive, the unborn child alive. But it's not the state's interest. It's the interest of the child itself. But when your basic concept starts with the state doles out rights, either the federal government as a state or states as components of the federal government, if the state doles out rights, then it's the state's interest you're looking at, not the individual's. So the court holds during the first trimester, abortion cannot be banned at all. In the second trimester, it can, and they say, for the stage subsequent to viability, the state in promoting its interest in the potentiality of human life may, if it chooses, regulate and even proscribe ban abortion except where it's necessary for the preservation of life or health of the mother. Again, this is a policy and philosophy questions. They have little constitutional mooring whatsoever. I understand the policy arguments in favor of choice and the ethical arguments against it, but more importantly, I understand, like Justice Harlan, the Constitution is not the place to look for the resolution of those issues. The irony or the absurdity of it is summed up in Justice Stewart's concurrence, where he agrees with the overall decision, the 7-2 majority. Stewart says in his concurrence, We have returned to the original constitutional proposition that courts do not substitute their social and economic beliefs for the judgment of legislative bodies, who are elected to pass laws. Then, of course, that's exactly what the court does. That's Roe versus Wade, episode 11. I'm D.K. Williams, and this has been The Law, episode 11. A great example of the court acting like a legislature, weighing policy, weighing opinions of medical doctors, and couching it in terms of constitutional analysis. It's not acting appropriately. We are brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network, always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. Again, follow me on Twitter. I want more Twitter followers, at Blue Carp. Also follow me on Facebook, facebook.com slash Blue Carp. Freedom is dangerous, my friends. Live dangerously.